Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Kira Norris from the TV show Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And joining us for the discussion is returning guest Anna Papard. Welcome back, Anna. Hello. So nice to be here. And we are specifically... Uh, oh, sorry. We are specifically going to be talking about the 19th episode of the first season, Duet. It was written by Peter Allen Fields and directed by James L. Conway, and it starred Nana Visitor as Kira Norris and Harris Eulin as uh, Armin Maritza. And it tells the story of Kira Norris capturing a Cardassian war criminal, though questions about the prisoner's identity quickly arise. Uh, Anna, I reached out to you and said, hey, can you come on and talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine? And you... (laughs) Uh, enthusiastically <laughs> to have a discussion about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Do you remember when you first came to this series and why you were so ready to come on and talk about it? Well, this is one of those television series that is so dear to my heart and really formative in my adult identity in so many ways. It was a series that I was obsessed with as a teenager and I came to it in a real roundabout way, (laughs) went through a sci-fi phase as a teen, as so many of us do. And as part of that, I got into Star Trek The Next Generation. And the way I got into that was weird as well. One of my best girlfriends, her mother was obsessed with TNG and had VHS tapes of every single episode that she'd taped off of television. They were all meticulously organized. So first I borrowed all of those from her. And I think I actually became aware of Deep Space Nine. It was actually airing when I got obsessed with it. It would have been just like ending around that time. But I don't think I had access to it on my very limited rural Ontario television. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, I became aware, I think, of Deep Space Nine through Star Trek fan fiction, which I read a lot of as a <laughs> teenage girl. And I was like, whoa, these characters sound amazing. I got to know more about this show. This is like where the good stuff is happening. This is so on my wavelength. And so I went and before before I'd even seen an episode of this show, I remember purchasing like the official Deep Space Nine companion, like this big like textbook size thing, like I remember it being like 60 bucks or something, which like in, in 1998 dollars for me as a teenager seemed like the most money in the entire world. Like this was the most precious book that I owned. And I read that thing cover to cover. Like I was a deep space nine fan without having ever seen an episode of deep space nine. And I was like, well, how am I actually going to watch this show? That same girlfriend. And this is why she remains a girlfriend to this day. Not the only reason, but it's indicative of what a good girlfriend she is. She taped all of the Deep Space Nine episodes for me, like they would air on cable, you know, at one in the morning because, you know, space syndication, the network in Canada. Yeah, it would be like in syndication, they would like air in the afternoon and also at one in the morning. So she would set her VCR to tape it for me every night and then bring me five episodes on a VHS tape every single week. And this is how I watched all of Deep Space Nine. (laughs) Yeah. And then I I don't have the tapes anymore, but they were precious to me for many, many years in terms of my watching and rewatching of this show. So it was really like the Star Trek. That was my Star Trek. It was the one that I connected to the most strongly. It remains my favorite one. And it remains one of my 
favorite television shows all time of all time just really formative to I don't know what my understanding of what a good television show is in a lot of ways mm -hmm. and so many of the characters remain very dear to my heart I mean you were like come on and talk about Deep Space Nine I was like I can't decide which character I want to talk about there are like five of them that are precious to me I mean they're all precious to me but <laughs> so many of them are extra precious to me but we settled on Kira and I think that was the right mm -hmm. choice yeah, I was like, I kind of assumed that whenever I got around to these first nine, we talk about Cisco, but then you were like Kira or Odo, and like, any of them are fine. <laughs> I think there's a lot of interesting things here for for any character that we talk about. Um, so I remember coming to Star Trek Deep Space Nine with the idea that this was going to be my Star Trek because, uh, like growing up, we had from some, uh. Uh, marathon that aired on Fox and I still remember it was on Fox because of all the ads uh, a whole bunch of the Star Trek the original series recorded and my you know when we got a VCR my dad saw that this marathon was of the original series was gonna be on and we recorded it and so that was one of the like the VHS tape sets <laughs> that we had was like these recorded from TV Star Trek the original series so I'd seen a bunch of that and then um I think by the time I was like getting into that the next generation had already started and so I started to catch up and watch some of uh the next generation and uh, you know, see that, but I always felt a little like I didn't have the whole picture. And then I heard they were going to be doing Deep Space Nine. And I was like, oh, this is the one that I can like get in on the ground floor yeah. and actually have all of the mythology. And a similar thing happened like with my comic book reading where like I read X-Men, but by the time I bought X-Men, it was like issue number 279 was the first issue I read. And it's like, I, I, in my mind, I was never ever going to be able to read, <laughs> you know, everything that had come before. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Generation X was a new X-Men yep. title that was launched in the 90s after I was already like a fan of X-Men. I'm like, oh, this can be my X-Men team. <laughs> it's reading oh, Generation God. X. Deep Space Nine is totally the Generation X. <laughs> we'll start yeah, the, you, you, you can date my <laughs> fandom uh, and my adolescence by like, oh, I'm getting into Generation X because that's going to be my X-Men comic. We're going to read every single one. And I will actually own the entire run. It blew my mind because uh, it seemed impossible when I was reading the other X-Men comic books and even the related X-Men comic books like New Mutants and X-Factor were too far in by the time I became a comic book reader for me to ever imagine that I could read every issue of those. But Generation X, I knew... I'd be able to do it. And DC Space Nine was the same thing. Like, I'm going to be able to watch every episode. And so I would watch. I remember uh, my memory is like the new episodes in syndication uh, because at that time, Star Trek was only released in syndication. Like, it didn't have an actual network. In my area, it would be on Saturday afternoons at like four in the afternoon or five in the afternoon. Uh, and so I remember like, oh, well, I'm watching the new Star Trek episodes on Saturday afternoon. <laughs> like, that's what I'm going to do. And then they, <laughs> you know, they'd rerun at 11 p.m. after the late night news or whatever it was, uh, you know, on another day of the week. Uh, and I don't remember, uh, I don't think I ever ended up watching the entirety of U69, but I watched the first four or five seasons, I think, uh, you know, all the way through uh, by that appointment viewing. Like, I got to be there <laughs> when the new episode yeah. uh, is coming out. And so I do have a fondness for Deep Space Nine or or like a, a nostalgia feeling for Deep Space Nine that is different than my fandom of the original series and The Next Generation mm -hmm. and Voyager. Because um, I never got into Voyager quite as much as I did in Deep Space Nine. And all the new stuff, like I'm aware it's there and I hear good things about it, but I haven't taken the time to go in, in you know, in, engage with all of the stuff that's on Paramount Plus and all the new series that they've done. At some point, I probably will <laughs> circle around and watch some of those. But there is something about Deep Space Nine that still feels a little bit like mine you know my, my star trek 
Yeah, I mean, a bunch of the new shows are kind of prequels and stuff, and then, of mm-hmm. course, they've continued Picard stories and stuff, and I've been kind of critical of that. I'm like, oh, man, I don't want to just be going back to these same old characters, and I'm like, God, if it was a Deep Space Nine reunion, you know, I'd 100% be there. <laughs> you know what? I would, too. Like, I have not gone and watched Picard, like, and I've seen every episode of The Next Generation at this point, uh, and I, 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 in my head, it's always like, oh, I need to go watch Picard, but I just haven't gone and done it. But if it was a new, like, Deep Space Nine movie, they were dropping Paramount plus that i would go like i would actually be pulling that one up right away (laughs) would have to but i mean you know we not all of our actors are surviving i don't think you could do it without rene abergenois so yeah oh oh no i mean of all the ones that you could do something else with though you could have him i know uh, know, the character of odo present as you know a cgi uh, creature a blob painful <laughs> painful <laughs> but uh, yeah it, it would it wouldn't feel right uh with that um so very excited to to talk about these two tonight and this particular episode of duet um when you said Karen Norris and you're like I know what episodes we can pick and I said we can watch any episode you want but can I just put in a little plug for duet and you're like well of course duet is on the list of of Karen Norris yeah. episodes um to watch and I actually use this uh, in class so I, like, I've not watched any Star Trek for like sitting down and watching like episodes or something I, I can't remember when I last did other than like pulling up maybe a random episode to like show my my like seven year old like, hey come watch this one with Kirk fighting the Gorn you're gonna love the Gorn uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like a few random ones like that but I use duet uh, in a class that I teach about Art Spiegelman's mouse where we have a section where we talk about other Holocaust stories uh, and, and uh, show us stories and um i show the 1960s star trek episode where they visited the nazi planet and then i show this one back to back and i talk about 30 years of processing of world war ii uh and what it does to the kind of storytelling uh that we receive uh in these allegorical versions uh you know of a sci-fi story just kind of telling an, an encapsulated story that is clearly inspired by the events of world war ii and uh and because of that i um like duet i've had it on in the background while you know my students are watching and i'm grading papers like i i know so many of the beats of this episode mm. and some of the monologues which are done so well uh in this episode that i was like oh if we're doing a karen norris i think it kind of has to be duet and fortunately you agreed <laughs> with me that it was okay to do duet oh yeah i mean it's a great episode and i mean it's very stagey in a classic star trek sense like there's a real kind of mm-hmm. like uh, play quality to this particular episode it is it's called like kind duet. of a bottle it episode is... yeah. <laughs> yeah it is very much uh these two actors playing off of each other um like a lot of the scenes are just two actors having a conversation mm-hmm. this this dialogue it's a very dialogue heavy very action light uh episode um all right before we jump into the plot summary of this episode, let's talk a little bit about D69. So Star Trek D69 was the third Star Trek series. It was created by Rick Berman and Michael Piller. And um, it was a very different setting for Star Trek because both the original series and the next generation were very much, we're going out into the stars and whatever we meet, that's our adventure. <laughs> and it would be particularly the original series was very episodic. It didn't matter what happened the week before the crew and probably the audience won't remember because <laughs> we're on to the next planet, uh, the next godlike being, uh, you know, whatever it is, is going to happen. That's, that's the next episode. And then, you know, Star Trek, the next generation was also like, we're just, we're, we're on a mission of exploration. We're going to meet new cultures, new aliens, new societies. And that's going to, um, 
drive the plot. With Star Trek D69, it's all set on a space station and a space station that is essentially like a buffer between uh, the war uh, of the Cardassians and the Bajorans. Uh, Cardassia had conquered Bajor and uh, really enslaved many of the Bajorans and they have recently been kicked off the planet and the Federation is there as kind of peacekeeping uh, group. And then also they're going to add in a wormhole that's going to cause lots of uh, <laughs> their, their means of doing exploration. Cause otherwise they're just kind of set on one space station <laughs> and, and people are like, well, is this what we want uh, for Star Trek? We want some exploration. So the wormhole is going to give them, you know, exploration to a different region eventually, but it is a very different feeling than the uh, we're on a journey and a voyage uh, that's going somewhere new every single week. And it allows for a different kind of, long form storytelling than what we got in the much more episodic previous two versions of Star Trek. And a bunch of the, a bunch of the sort of academic work that's been done on Deep Space Nine, which I, I haven't published anything, but I certainly worked on it a little bit as a grad student has to do with it being kind of a post-colonial series in some ways, because it is the series where, you know, these earthly adventurers have to stay and reckon with the consequences of exploration, with the consequences of planets interacting with each other. And um, and yeah, I think that that's one of the aspects of the series that's particularly interesting politically, you know, because there is a, a frontier aspect to both the original series and, and TNG, where Yes, they're having this this mission of peace and exploration, but they're also cowboys in a lot of ways that they go to a planet and mess stuff up and then they leave and they don't have to reckon with the consequences. But in Deep Space Nine, everything is consequences. You are stuck there on the space station. People don't get along. There are interpersonal conflicts. You are dealing with a literal post-colonial atmosphere in terms of the recently liberated Bajor having to deal with what independence means and what their relationship with the Federation means. And so there's just a lot of political allegory stuff that's deeply fascinating about this show that's captured very effectively in this particular episode. Yes, uh, I think that's true. And um, more so than the original series and the next generation, this show develops like it's uh I want to use the word mythology, but it's almost more like uh, politics <laughs> that mm -hmm. the, the character interactions. Uh, and again, that long form storytelling of um, both uh, war and politics and religion uh, and just culture and societies interacting and like the, uh, the rough edges of, of where those, those differing motivations are going to be bumping up against each other in an intergalactic uh, allegory for a lot of, you know, for many of these episodes, you can go point to the real world inspiration of, of yeah. what they're doing with intergalactic politics. Like for this episode, it is, you can't watch it and not think space Nazis. <laughs> Those yes. are the space Nazis. Uh, and, and yet uh, it, it uh, how many seasons did this one run for? Was it seven seasons? Seven seasons. Uh, seven seasons uh it, it's just again a very different feel from the other star trek and i like it I, and um i know a lot of people who is like well next generation is my star trek you know or whatever it may be but there's there's something uh different in the kind of stories that they're able to tell on d Space nine than what we'd seen from star trek before yeah the ways that they're able to reckon with some of the some of the problems of the federation's vision for how the universe should be while still maintaining that optimistic vision i think is is particularly what draws me to this show 
Mm-hmm. All right, some more trivia. Major than Colonel Kira Norris was played by actress Nana Visitor. The character is a Bajoran from the planet Bajor, a world that for most of Kira's life had uh, been occupied by the lizard-like Cardassians. I will say whenever I show this uh, episode in my class and uh, for there's always a few students who are like, they know. They know exactly what they're getting into with Deuces Nine. But for some students, this is the first time they've ever seen a Star Trek <laughs> or or this Cardassian oh, no. and Kardashian. Uh, do you get a little ah. like, oh, I thought they said Kardashians. <laughs> uh, which was not on the radar for the Star Trek writers in 1990s. Uh, that, that the Kardashian would become a very well-known pop culture term. Uh, oh, but the, So the Kardashians had conquered Bajor. Uh, Kira was raised in a labor camp and became a resistance fighter. Uh, at a young age, uh, part of an underground movement that carried out guerrilla attacks against the Cardassian military and on occasion, Cardassian civilian targets. Guerrilla fighters like Kira were instrumental in ending the 50-year Cardassian occupation of Bajor. And this background makes her a skilled tactician and hand-to-hand fighter as well as a fierce defender of Bajor. So after the occupation, Kira is assigned to Deep Space Nine, a space station that is jointly operated by the Federation, uh, the United Federation of Planets, and also the Bajoran government, where she serves as the second in command. So the uh, Captain Cisco, or is it Commander? Is the Commander then Captain? I can't remember with Cisco. Uh, Cisco is the Federation uh, person who is in charge, and Kira Norris is, is the second in command and is uh, representing the Bajoran government. And um, she gets promoted to colonel and oversees several important missions during what is going to be called the Dominion War and eventually uh, is going to be in command of the station when Cisco leaves to join the prophets, which is a whole different mythology. I'm not we're not we're not addressing. Cisco don't don't worry here. about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um and Kira is committed to her Bajoran faith, with uh, which sometimes puts her in conflict with Cisco, who, at least initially, insists on a scientific explanation for the prophets. And she has several romantic relationships over the course of the series, including with the religious leader Vedic Burial and a former resistance leader Shakar Eden, as well as her longtime friend and confidant, uh, the shapeshifting security chief Odo. In the early stages of planning Deep Space Nine, the series creators wanted to bring in a Bajoran character, Ro Laren, who had been on Star Trek The Next Generation, but that actress, Michelle Forbes, turned down the, the offer. So a new Bajoran character was created, and that is Kira Norris. And in a 2018 interview, Nina, a Nana Visitor had this to say about her casting. She said, when I read the script, I thought, that's a man's role. That's not for me. Yet... It was all I wanted to do. I hated every part that I had to play where I was chastising a husband or getting upset about the carpet. And I did a lot of those parts. Anytime I could get my teeth into something, that was my flow state. That's why I was an actor. Major Kira was like Disneyland for an actor. And that is the character we're going to be talking about. And uh, the performances by uh, Nana Visitor and um, oh, who's the actor who plays uh, the Cardassian the in this? It was... Uh, I've got it here. Harris Yulin. Yeah. Harris Yulin. The per- performances here are what make this episode work. If you did not have actors who were like engaging in the the meat of the roles that have been written for them in what could feel silly, like the the actor playing the Cardassian is like, I'm wearing tons of prosthetics on my face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And uh, there's all these twists. Uh, like you could see a choice to ham it up, uh, but he plays it earnest and emotional uh and it is such a good job and kieran Reese's responses and uh the way that nano visitor 
play some of her monologues. Uh, it it just makes this whole episode sink. It is a, one of the best episodes of Star Trek, I think. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we mentioned how, you know, this show was very important, uh, formative for us when we were younger. I don't think I've watched a single episode of Deep Space Nine in at least 10 years. It's been quite a while. Uh, I watched this last night to make sure that it was fresh. Every time that she tears up in this episode, which is several times, 100% was crying. <laughs> like I just was so affected by seeing her again and thinking about the effect that she had on me as a teen girl and the emotion that she brings to, to this role and this episode in particular. It really, it got me all over again. <laughs> All right, before we move on to the plot summary, we want to thank you for downloading this episode, and we especially want to thank any of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with a dollar per month. Uh, all supporters at any level on Patreon receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast, and all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. On to the plot summary. A visitor at DC9 needs treatment for Kalanora syndrome. Kira wants to go see the guest because Kalanora was caused by an accident at a concentration camp called Galatep. But when she meets the visitor, it is a Cardassian, not a Bajoran. So she orders him arrested for, for war crimes. His name is Amin Maritza, but his name is not on any Bajoran list of war criminals. Maritza claims to have only been a file clerk. His name wasn't notable enough to be of concern to Bajorans. Uh, in trying to figure out if that's really who he is, Kira finds a photo from uh, Galatep, which reveals that the man is not Maritza, but Gul Darheel, the ruthless butcher of Galatep, who worked many Bajorans to death and tortured and raped and and maimed uh, uh, many Bajorans. The descriptions of this camp are brutal, and it is a clear analog to Nazi concentration camps. When confronted with this new information, Maritza admits he is Gull Darheel, and he is proud of what he did at Galatep. He gives a monologue about how important his work was. Kira is emotionally shaken by this, but as they look more into this situation, issues arise. The Cardassian Empire insists that Gull Darheel has died, and also Gull Darheel was not at Galatep when the accident occurred that gave prisoners and prison guards the Kalanora syndrome. Dr. Bashir reports that there is evidence that the prisoner has had cosmetic surgery. Kira realizes the prisoner is the file clerk Maritza, but he changed his appearance to look like Gull Darheel. She goes and asks him why he would do this. At first, he tries to continue the charade of being Maritza, but he breaks down in, cheer, in tears, explaining that he was a coward at the camp, allowing the cruelty to the Bajorans to occur there and never doing anything to stop it. Now he wants to be tried as Goldarheel so that Cardassia's sins and atrocities will be more widely known and that Bajor can get a sense of any justice from what had happened to them. He begs Kira to allow him to be tried for war crimes. Kira releases Maritza because continuing a cycle of punishing the innocent won't heal Bajor or Cardassia. As Kira walks Maritza to his ship, a drunk Bajoran stabs him, killing him. Kira yells that he wasn't Galdarheel, he was innocent, and the Bajoran says he was a Cardassian, and that's enough. The end. What a happy note to end this episode on. <laughs> it ends abruptly. Abruptly. Yes, the stabbing, and then um, there is, uh, like, and I uh, some of this is because I've shown it in class several times. There's always a feeling of, like, 
is anyone going to do some first aid on the stabbing victim? Like he might not I know. be fully dead yet. <laughs> they do have attempt? that magic Star Trek science where they can just wave a wand over somebody and cure them. So it does make me wonder, but still. Because he, he gets stabbed and he, he falls down and closes his eyes and Kira's crying over him. And it is an emotional scene, but a little bit of undercutting of the emotionality is the question of like, yeah. <laughs> can we put pressure on that wound and stop the bleeding? <laughs> I agree. It, it is a bit odd. <laughs> yeah, like, like I'd say 95% of this episode, I wouldn't change a thing. That that final scene, maybe just a little bit, <laughs> too. Because it becomes like, a little bit too stagey in that moment, too, because they do the real, like, Renaissance painting pose of, like, her cradling him in her arms, you know. And the crowd standing idly around, looking down. Yeah. And, like, the slow yeah. pullback of the camera to show, like you said, like, this, this clearly, carefully orchestrated scene. We just recorded an episode talking about comic books, and I think if that panel was there in a comic book, it would feel right. But to have it staged and everyone like in, you know, uh, not quite slow motion, but like standing so still around a victim, it feels like we need to be doing something more with more urgency uh, right now. Yeah, it's stagey in a way that I think undercuts some of the deep humanity of this episode. I agree. Yeah. But again, overall, like that's probably my only nit to pick <laughs> is, is, is that mm-hmm. final. And I understand why they're doing it because they are going for that big emotion. And on one level, the big emotion does hit uh, like the stabbing and the line, like he's a Cardassian. That's enough after, you know, Kira actually of like for the first time see- seeing uh, like the individuality of this Cardassian <laughs> that, that she's holding uh, in, in the cell. Uh, it, it does become like a significant moment. Uh, I just wish maybe it had been staged slightly differently. Um, so what do you want to talk about with Kira Norris and the episode <laughs> duet? Uh, I don't know. Should we start off just talking about Kira as a character a little bit? I mean, yeah, there's a reason why this episode is such a great character spotlight for her. I mean, it distills so much about what makes the character great. And, you know, it's funny. I don't think I've realized what an effect this character had on me you know, as a teen girl watching this show until much later, when I was watching it as a teenager, I would have said my favorite characters were Odo and Bashir. And yet all these years later, she is the character that lives most strongly in my heart. And there are a number of reasons why I haven't historically identified with female characters in media, in particular, a lot of sort of action and sci-fi genres in which I think it's fair to say women are not always portrayed in a way that makes me want to identify with them. And I mean, Star there Trek are has some a, issues. There yeah. are some issues. And I mean, scholars and fans and, you know, fan, fan scholars have talked a lot about the genesis of something like Star Trek <laughs> slash fiction as being, you know, like there's an erotic component to it, but also, you know, and like, some of the first people that wrote that Star Trek slash fiction have written about this as well, that partly there just weren't female characters in the franchise they wanted to be. So they decided to be male characters instead and write male characters as allegories for themselves. Mm-hmm. And yet you have a character and, you know, I would say that this continues as a problem through TNG as well. I love Deanna. I love Beverly, but you know, they had their kind of, action-oriented security chief character in Tasha Yar, and then she leaves the show, and they never really replace that presence on TNG. And mm-hmm. the female characters of TNG are often put in, I think it's fair to say, problematic plots, having a lot of gender tropes attached to them with female emotionality, and like the famous episode where Beverly's plot is like, 
having sex with like the candle ghost. There's just like a lot of stuff like that, that like made as much as I love reclaiming those characters. And I think that they're powerful characters in many ways. They weren't characters that really resonated with me the way a character like Kira resonates with me. And I'd, I'd love to talk just like a little bit about like what makes her a complex character and like how it mm-hmm. relates to that idea of the quote unquote strong female character. That's such a overused term in fandom spaces and some scholarly spaces as well. Like we can misunderstand that term as a term that just means like physical strength or like within the context of something that's sort of militaristic, like Star Trek, you know, well, someone's a Mm -hmm. commander, someone's a general, so automatically they're strong. But of course, that's not necessarily true. Strength of character has to do with how human that character is, how complex that character is. One of the central things I find, exactly. Yeah, yeah, because like agency is so much more complicated than that, right? And -hmm. like one of the things that really, really resonates with me with Kira is that she gets to kind of do the bad girl thing, but she never loses kind of access to her emotional core because there can be a version of that character who's just like this ass kicking bad girl who is emotionless, right? And that's never Kira. Like Kira is a character who's driven by emotion, yet she's not punished for that. It's not treated as a negative trait of the character. In fact, it's treated as a positive trait of the character. And you see that in this episode where... Her emotionality does make her not trusted initially by Cisco. He's like, you can't conduct this investigation. You're too close to it. And in a conversation with him, he quickly sees that her emotion is passion. Like her emotion is exactly what's going to result in her doing the best job possible and turning the emotion that she has, like that drives her, like her deep belief into a strength rather than a weakness and sort of playing against the hysterical woman trope that, you know, any female character being emotional so often falls into that. Well, she's able to resist that. And that speaks to the character's complexity that speaks to the character's agency. And again, I just think that that's so well represented in this, in this episode, you know, where she's giving these passionate speeches in which she's tearing up a little bit but not in a weepy way she's tearing up Mm -hmm. in a way that she's so passionate and she's passionate about defending her people she's passionate about righting wrongs but she's also passionate about getting to the truth so again like her emotionality becomes a strength rather than a weakness and to me that really speaks to the core of this character yeah the emotionality both for Kira Norris and Maritza uh in this it doesn't get played as like a a loss of control or, or that they're ever out yeah. of control of their emotions. Um, and which, which as you say, like is a trope that is all too frequent is that any emotionality from a, a woman character is shown as like they're, they're out of control. They, they, you know, they, they need to be relieved uh, from any responsibilities because you know, they can't handle it. And that's not the, the story that we get here. Uh, the emotionality is depth uh, and revealing yes. uh, about these characters, not off-putting uh, which you sometimes see for displays of emotion. Yeah, and it's not that she's a perfect character either. I mean, she's a deeply flawed character, which, again, speaks to agency because, you know, we can have an idea that female heroes need to be perfect, right? That they can't have flaws, that they need to be these certain type of ideals. But that's also a sexist trope because that's that angel of the house, angel in the house trope, right? They have to be these moral paragons. And Kira is not a moral paragon. She has deep flaws. She says in this episode, she wants him to be guilty. She wants things to turn out a certain way and yet the heroism of the character in this episode is 
being able to recognize when she's wrong and particularly to being able to recognize when she's wrong by putting trust in other people, which I think is important. You know, there's two key conversations she has in this episode with Jadzia Dax and with Odo and the conversation with Odo particularly relevant because they have a long history together from before the end of the Cardassian um, occupation of Bajor. So like she is a, he is a person that she really, really trusts and her ability to trust and talk through her problems with those two characters is an aspect of her strength as well, right? She's motivated by a deep individualism, by a strong belief in herself, and yet she's also operates within sort of communities and networks that, again, I think speaks to the complexity of, of her character and also her strength of character. Yeah, she really is... Um like just a fascinating figure. And I, when I was watching this in the, in the nineties, I don't think I thought particularly frequently <laughs> about, about Karen Reese. Like the, the character did not, uh, la- you know, it wasn't something I latched onto. Um, but now it's like when I was watching this episode again, like, and, and writing up the summary, I'm like, I need to rewatch this whole series and pay close attention <laughs> to, to mm. that. Uh, you know, when I was watching it as a teenager, um, I, I liked Bashir. I liked, I liked Cisco. I liked, uh, you know, there's a shape-shifting alien. Like that's always going to be fascinating. The idea that there's a shape-shifter <laughs> there. Uh, um, but um, and, uh, something about Kira, I, I just didn't like latch onto her story as much. Um, now, clearly for you, it was very relevant. Uh, like you're saying, like you, you maybe even didn't even process how much uh, it, it was important to you. Uh, but it has become like, like I, I think I might need to go do a DC Snap rewatch and, and pay closer attention to all the political allegories that I'm sure I just was 100% missing as, <laughs> as a adolescent watch, watching the series. Uh, and, um, you know, really try and dig in and appreciate the, the depth of storytelling that that's happening here. And I know like, not every episode is going to be as good as duet. Like, like I think this is still shows up on lists of like for all the hundreds of Star Trek episodes that have been made in all of the series. This one gets mentioned. It's one of the very best uh, of the entire franchise. Um, but I think it's uh, indicative of the kind of quality storytelling that this different setting for Star Trek allows them to engage with. And it also is indicative as you're saying as like this, this kind of performance uh, or this writing for a, a woman character just wasn't present in the 1960s Star Trek in the original series. Like it just wasn't really on the radar uh, for them to, to do this. Uh, and uh, this, this writing and this performance really do create a character that sticks in your mind. Like, like some of these moments are really some of the, some of those like um, just like pop culture moments that you can just point to and say, ah, yes. <laughs> like her monologue yeah. about what happened at Galatep. It is so powerful. Uh, and then also, even though it lingers a little too long, it goes, uh, you know, like when she's over his dead body uh, at the end, like she gives a really great moment. Uh, and there's just really excellent work that's being done uh, for all facets of this production. And for what you said, like it's basically a bottle episode where we've got a dialogue between two characters is the bulk of the action uh, that's going to happen here. But it's riveting. Like you can't turn away and they, they pack in twists uh, and twist and twist, <laughs> you know, in this through conversation. Uh, and I'm just really impressed with everything that they were able to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I just can't say enough about the rivetingness of her in this role. I mean, 
every time she's on screen, she's just electric. You know, she's got mm-hmm. like a sheen to her eyes. Like her passion is just palpable, like both like her negative passion and her positive passion, her pain and her determination. Just it's written into every facial expression that she has throughout this episode and her body language as well. She's got a real physicality that she brings to this part. I mean, she's a very small woman, isn't that a visitor? And yet she brings such a physical presence to this part. I mean, partly it's like the 90s shoulder pads that they stick her in, but still the way that she carries herself. I mean, she carries herself stiff and proud and it is an important part of the way that she portrays this character. Yeah, and um, because Deep Space Nine has a fairly large ensemble, uh, I'm sure there are many episodes that she has one line in. And as an actress, it must be like, you're getting this script, and you're like, oh boy, here we go. (laughs) Let's go off to the races. (laughs) Because she, not only is she in literally almost every scene, uh, you know, of this, but she's been given such fantastic lines uh, to read. Now, because this is such a Kira Norris episode, some of the other actors and actresses they get the one-line treatment like Chadzia Dax uh, I think is in the opening scene <laughs> and, th- and that's it and uh she has you the know, conversation uh, with Kira too she gives her some oh, right, sage right. advice <laughs> right and, but like uh you know Bashir like gets to like report from you know he yeah. had to do like a half hour of work to come record his lines where he gives a little report <laughs> about Kalinora syndrome and uh then suspecting that it's it's plastic surgery uh which I'm sure sometimes if you're in a, a big ensemble that's kind of like a relief also like like, oh, I get paid the same amount <laughs> to come in and do half hour work. But for an, you know, an actress and their craft, it has to be so exciting to get this kind of script uh, and be able I mean, to go. Just... Yeah. I mean, it's just like, yeah, I mean, you were saying, you know, how unusual it is to, to have one of the female characters in this franchise be given this type of storyline and these type of lines and this kind of pathos. I mean, this is the kind of story that they would have given to Patrick Stewart, like on TNG, like he would be the one that's giving the speeches about morality and conducting the interrogation and stuff, you know, like in an episode like Measure of a Man, when they have the the debate about data's humanity, you know, that's Patrick Stewart that's given all of those <laughs> high dialogue moments. But to have a female character in this franchise be be put in that role and be, to be given such a meaty part, it was very, very unusual. Like I would mm-hmm. argue unprecedented before an episode like this launched. Unfortunately, it doesn't become unprecedented. I mean, the next series after this is going to have Janeway, uh, leading Voyager and getting by default many of those kind of command moments, uh, you know, as as the captain. And, and so it's going to become less uh, of an outlier. But at this point uh, in the first season of Deep Space Nine, where all we have is the first three seasons of, of TOS and probably what, three seasons of the next generation when this one's happening or four, uh, you know, next generation is still going. Yes, this is a surprising. And also, um, you know, I mentioned it a little bit at the beginning, but uh, Harris Yulin, to play off of her as Maritza, he is just so fantastic in this. And I looked him up like, what does he look like? Not under the, uh, the Cardassian makeup. And, and immediately I was like, oh, he's one of those guy actors. Like I've seen him yeah. in so many things. <laughs> like he, he, he has like, like his IMDb is just like one episode of every TV series from the nineties, uh-huh. early two thousands. <laughs> and you know, he just, he just pops in, you know, and he's one of the, those guy actors. Just one of those character you know, actors that always, that always brings it. <laughs> Uh, but but he really did bring it uh, in, in this episode, and I love the way uh, that he can he he plays both like the the arrogance, uh, but then also uh, 
when, when, when he does the breakdown and you as an audience know like, oh, that arrogance was a facade. It like, it doesn't feel like he wasn't playing it as a facade before. <laughs> like mm-hmm. the, the performance was him pretending to be arrogant. And now we're seeing the real him at the very end uh, as he, as he breaks down. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the two, the two actors really play off each other well in, in this episode. It's just one of those, I mean, I'm not an actor. It's definitely not one of my skills, but I have to think when you are an actor to be given an episode like this, you're just like, Oh boy, this is what I live for. To be able yeah, this, to this, this is why I became this an actor. kind of episode. Mm-hmm. And, and when the episode is called duet, you've got to be able to have the right chemistry. Uh, and, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think so often when we say chemistry, it, people think romantic chemistry. Like, oh, do they have, like, do you believe that there's a romance here? But like in this, the chemistry is like, do they hate each other? <laughs> does he have disdain yeah. for her? Uh, does she have uh, like just, just loathing uh, for him? And then do they also like see, and you know, this is weird to say for aliens, but do they see the humanity in each other at the end. And the chemistry for every single of those emotional beats is delivered uh, in this. Well, I mean, you brought up the humanity of them. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about, too, is how unusual it is to have this story being told with two alien characters at the center of it. You know, obviously in TNG, we'd had a little bit of that, you know, when we have our token wharf episode or to an extent our token data episode, although data is sort of like based on a human. So it's not quite an alien character. But having the two alien characters at the center of this, I mean, that's one of the things that's interesting about the allegorical aspect of it, right? You know, arguably, you know, if we believe like Darko Subin's theory of the novum science fiction, having these characters be alien characters can make this allegory about genocide and the Holocaust, you know, resonate in new ways, you know, mm-hmm. because we're able to insert ourselves into this universalized story through these characters who aren't human. And, you know, you can argue whether that's yeah, problematic and, I mean, or whether is... that's positive. And I think it can be both things depending on the story. I think, yeah. Uh, famously, Star Trek, the original series, would use the allegory to talk about stuff that they couldn't. Uh, and so there is something about that distancing with science fiction, mm-hmm. uh, with using aliens, that um, can sometimes allow us to address things that are taboo uh, to talk about. Um, I think doing even today, an episode in which there is some level of sympathy for a Nazi clerk would not go down well. Um, and this, uh, you know, the, the finale of this is about breaking the cycle of hatred and violence is very much what we're supposed to uh, be coming away with. Uh, but I think that the distance that this is a guy in like lizard like alien makeup <laughs> makes it that that she's feeling some sympathy just safe enough <laughs> you know that it's not literally yeah. a, you know a nazi that the audience is supposed to have had some sympathy for uh, at this point uh but it because that is a tricky thing uh when, when you're dealing with real stories real tragedies uh real violence that has occurred uh in in, in the world um that you do get some level of both safety for the creators to be able to tell uh, the story that they want to, but also safety for the audience to receive the story um, because it is distance just enough. Yeah. And I had thoughts about that too, you know, whether this episode is ultimately a bit too sympathetic to Maritza by the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. I'm going to just say like, personally, I do think it's ultimately a little bit too sympathetic to him. Mm -hmm. It turns for me a little bit too hard toward 
Kira has to learn about humanity through his humanity. It goes a bit too far <laughs> in yeah. that mm -hmm. like regard for yeah, like me. It's heading into Boy in the Stripe yeah. pajamas territory. It doesn't <laughs> yeah, reach it, yeah. but it's heading <laughs> un uncomfortably close in that direction. Mm -hmm. um, so that is the issue that I have with this episode, but yeah. still, it's not enough to to upset me too, too much because there's a lot of other good things going on. Yeah, I, I think the... Uh, what would have made sense is that he still is going to be tried for crimes, just yes, not yes. as Goldar heel. But then they also wanted to have the moment of, uh, you know, the Bajoran hatred uh, be, being condemned, uh, you know, and, and the idea that, well, he's, he's just a, not that like if the, the killing had been because, well, he was at Galatep and be like, well, okay, well that's just justified. But the fact that the, you know, the killing is just because he's a Cardassian is like, well, that's a level of prejudice that now we need to root out of ourselves uh as well but i yeah i i do see absolutely your point that maybe we've moved a little too close to saying well forgive and forget can, can get a bit <laughs> both sidesy if we go too far in that direction yes which you know uh -huh. one people were the colonizers and one people were the colonized in this situation so one group of people does have more reason to actually hate the other group of people exactly yeah uh and uh, yeah i think we could have avoided feeling that at all if the, the end takeaway had been well you're going to be tried but not for the massive war crimes of galdar hill but yeah, for exactly. the, the war crimes of uh you know a cog in the machine but you were still part of the machine but in terms of things the episode does well one of the other things i was thinking about was kind of i mean this is such an overused term these days but kind of the theme of gaslighting that goes on throughout mm -hmm. because there are a number of instances in this episode where people try to challenge kira's experience and like the good guys and the bad guys try to do this you know Sitco, cisco tries to do that originally you know she's like i saw the camps i saw what they did to people there and it's almost like he doesn't quite take her seriously and like there's a gaslighting quality to that where her experience doesn't matter to him as much as it possibly should and that can make her doubt her own experience and it's really frightening to watch because you see Again, that's that in, that's that one of those tipping points where sort of like it could veer into female hysteria and she's not being taken seriously. She's too emotional, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, thankfully, Cisco walks that back and sees that as her strength because they're still getting to know each other. Right. So it's sort of an important moment in their relationship in a lot of ways as well, because they can sometimes have an adversarial relationship. But um, a lot of the speeches with with Maritza, too, you know, when he's impersonating Galdar heel have a gaslighting aspect to them like he'll be like I, there were no atrocities people just died at the camps you know it was a labor camp yeah. like we weren't killing mm -hmm. people intentionally and you can see how much it's upsetting her and like it's upsetting her because it's challenging her own experience but also seeing the justifications of her oppressors laid out so barely and just that little grain of like I don't want to say doubt because that's too much but gaslighting can be really, really powerful. You know, you're like, I don't know, was what I saw what I saw? And it's not that Kira ever doubts that because that would be silly. But at the same time, like, oh, that's such an identifiable experience, isn't it? For someone to be like, you reacted so emotionally to this objectively horrible thing, but maybe you're taking it a little bit too seriously. Maybe what you saw what wasn't really what you saw, you know? Maybe you're interpreting this incorrectly and just, oh, God, like... 
the male energy of that, like directed at Kira, that's like one of those things where it's like it's mobilizing sexist tropes, but it's doing it away in a way that like helps us empathize with Kira, that helps us sympathize with Kira, that helps us understand why this kind of rhetoric is so painful and so wrong. And I think that's another case where the alienness of these characters you know, could potentially allow a viewer who doesn't necessarily have that experience of like being gaslight as a woman, gaslit as a woman in power, mm-hmm. which like a lot of women who have held powerful positions in society have experienced this before. If you haven't necessarily had that experience, you know, maybe the force of allegory can can help you experience the the sort of pain of that a little bit through Kira. Little tease, uh, I do have a guest lined up to come and record an episode about the film Gaslight, where we will talk about what that term actually means. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you can get and, into and it more it there. how it somehow has become just lying. Of like, no, gaslighting and lying are, are different. They're on the same spectrum, but they're different. There. Very different. It's a very overused term. I was hesitant to even use that term, but like, yeah. that no, is I, definitely I think you're what right he's doing when, in some of those scenes. Yes, and it's so fascinating to go back and think about like the care that took the the writing, the performance um, to, to allow him to be doing that in such like a smarmy way, but then to know like he's really <laughs> just, uh, you know, someone who's trying to highlight Cardassia's evilness and uh, you know, the, the sins that he feels his people have done. And in one way that he tries to, make that come out is when I'm pretending that I approve of everything that we did, I'm going to be proud of it or, or dismiss the complaints about the extremities of it and say, well, no, you know, yes, we were in charge, but it wasn't that bad. Well, I mean, it's so resonant too with so many of the, I mean, you know, there's always going to be like Holocaust denial. There's always going to be like people minimizing the horrors of slavery. I mean, you see that, going on right now in our moment like with like the florida Uh stuff of like let's talk about some of the positive aspects of slavery right like that is so much like his gaslighting speeches here where it's like Mm -hmm. it wasn't that bad maybe we did some good things we were just trying to impose order and it's just like (laughs) sickening how relevant those excuses still are to like the way people perceive atrocities and genocides you know in our present moment yeah, uh, and this is one thing that uh, I think Star Trek, when it's at its best, is able to do is uh, present, again, through the lens of allegory, issues that are relevant for history, for the present when it's being made, and that we still mm-hmm. find like relevancy as audiences now for an episode that is almost 30 years old. I don't want to talk about that. I know. <laughs> you know? Uh, that, it, that it still has uh, this, this high relevancy. Um, and as a franchise, Star Trek absolutely has its ups and downs. <laughs> it has, has many episodes that don't just don't land. Uh, and, uh, but it has some fantastic television and storytelling, you know, just, just as far as um, good, narrative storytelling star trek has it many times uh in the franchise history absolutely anything else that you want to touch on with kira or this particular episode before we're going to wrap up soon um well one of the things that i kind of maybe wanted to circle back to is kind of the relationships she has with other characters in this episode Mm -hmm. you know i mentioned it earlier that she has the important conversation with dax and a couple of conversations with odo And what struck me about the relevance of those conversations was, you know, all the characters in Deep Space Nine are kind of like 
outsiders in in various ways i mean that's one of the hallmarks of this cast <laughs> like it's telling that Bashir was too normal so they had to give him like a backstory where actually he's genetically engineered and like sort of came to this station to like escape those crimes you know like everybody is kind of exiled here for a different reason right and then they join together through their shared outsiderness right but anyway I did find it interesting that the two characters that Kira ends up taking advice from are Dax and Odo because they're both characters who have very outsider perspectives on things. I mean, Dax is someone who's lived multiple lifetimes. It's a character that For any listeners who with... don't know, mm-hmm. <laughs> Dax is a character yeah. that has uh, a simote that has mm-hmm. the memories of past a worm, lives. She's got a, got a worm inside of her that remembers Right everything. in her belly. <laughs> little slit in the belly. <laughs> slide it right in. <laughs> Maybe it's nice. Oh. I'll remember like, oh, that worm's just sliding. <laughs> <laughs> Always great when they do a surgery scene involving the worm, just quality television. (laughs) There are a number of them. Um, But anyway, yeah, I mean, like, just um, Dax and Odo are like outsider characters in various ways. I mean, like, Dax is a character that, you know... Uh, the first like lesbian kiss on mainstream television occurred with this character, a character that embodies trans themes very effectively through like her multiple lifetimes and the character of Odo as well is a character who doesn't fit in anywhere. He's one of a kind until the discovery of his people through, through the wormhole later in the series. And these are the two characters that she goes to for advice. These are the two characters that she trusts. And I just think that's interesting in terms of the way Kira herself is a very boundary breaking character. And it speaks to the very first line of this episode, which is like we we sort of open in media res with Kira telling a story that we never hear. And the first mm-hmm. line just is, we never cared what we did as long as it annoyed the grownups. And we don't ever hear what she's talking about. We just open on that line, which is so sort of resonant in the outsider identity of this character, mm-hmm. the rebel identity of this character. And yeah, sort of the fact that the two characters that she would trust to help her are in particular those two characters. I mean, she wouldn't go to Bashir for advice. She doesn't trust Cisco, but and she can trust point, Dax and she can trust Odo. In season one, I even I remember no one should go to Bashir for advice in season one. No, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> Pretty much throughout the series, I'd say don't go to Bashir for advice. I can't, I can't but remember still. What, how much evolution happens with that character. <laughs> <laughs> I but love season him, one. But... I do remember he was he was kind of a you know yes lovable but also like come on Bashir get your act together <laughs> yeah <laughs> fair fair <laughs> uh, no I I think you there's something really interesting in that because again like this is an episode where most of the main cast is going to be on set for half a day <laughs> to knock out all their scenes uh you know, I, I imagine the pace uh you know if, if it's like unto other uh episodic television from this era that i'm more familiar with some production schedules they had about a week to film an episode uh and most everyone really wasn't needed every day <laughs> for the amount of screen time that they're going to get um kieran reese and and maritza they're there every single day i'm sure uh getting it and reshooting some of the monologues make sure they get the tone just right uh but that means when they have such little screen time are they given bits of business that make it interesting or are they just there because their contract said they're going to appear in every episode uh and i think they do successfully give particularly uh dax and odo some meaningfulness uh in 
in the interaction like we learn about some of their characters and some of uh who they are whereas like cisco in this episode i think mostly he's there to advance some of the plot like he's gonna get some information from the cardassians you know that that's what his character is there for uh and and bashir he's there to advance the plot he's gonna tell us about you know kalinora and about the um the plastic surgery and that's really the only bit of business that they were able to give that character uh so i think that's why those those other interactions stand out a, a bit more as far as like being a little bit relevatory uh, about the characters because a little bit more time I think was taken to say like, okay, we're, we're we, we have to do a scene <laughs> with, with uh, Odo here. What, what are we going to do? And I think they made and, the right choices know. for the reasons that you identified. Yeah. And I mean, you know, of course, like with Odo and Kira too, they're characters that come into the series with a lot of mystery in terms of what were their backstories, you know, during the occupation and thereafter. And we have some flashback episodes later getting into some of that and some of the dark business that both of them were engaged in. But this is a Kira episode, so I don't want to go off on Odo, mm-hmm. but his scene with Dal- Gal Dukat in this episode where like you get these little glimpses of his past like Ducat is like oh I've missed you Odo like that time we played cards or whatever and Odo's like it was one game of cards and you cheated and it's like these little like hints of this longer history with this character because I mean Odo is one of the most interesting characters at the start of the series because you know nothing about him. He doesn't know where he comes from, like total like blank slate. And like, yeah, I was remembering also why I was so drawn to to that character. Yeah. And I also I we see it really well with uh, Maritza, but Goldicott, I want to say like the level of makeup work that was done on the Cardassians that allowed the actors to still be so expressive. It's mm. like, oh, they've actually made a leap from you know, certainly 1960s Star Trek makeup, <laughs> but even I think uh, the next generation, there's just, a, a, it feels like a different level of performance is coming out of the Cardassians than we get from a lot of the aliens in the, uh, in the next generation as we yeah, see it. And, I, I, and some of it is, I think we like, we see gold to cut throughout the series. So the actor is like developing mm-hmm. a character across multiple, you know, seasons uh, of the series, but there is, really good expressiveness and emotionality that does come through from these performers that are playing under, I'm sure what is hours of latex makeup (laughs) and uh, you know, that's being applied. How do your students respond to that? Do they find that silly? Do they just like see like the Cardassian makeup and the Odo makeup and they're just like, what the hell is this? I I think there's like, like, even for students who don't watch Star Trek, there's enough like familiarity with the the Mm -hmm. tropes of pop culture, uh, you know, uh, alien creatures that are all vaguely humanoid. <laughs> you know, and that it's not surprising. Uh, yeah. to, to, <laughs> uh, especially if it's you know if it's a television alien, it's probably going to look you know like a human in makeup. <laughs> That's just what we can afford <laughs> on on the television budget. You you only yeah. get the xenomorphs at, at, at a big screen budget. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Anna, for joining us. That is going to wrap up this episode. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Anna, where could our listeners uh, find more of your content? Um, they can find me for the moment on Twitter, aka X, just under my name, Papard underscore Anna. They can also find me at the, again, still on Twitter, uh, account Sequential Scholars, where my friend and colleague Andrew DeMann and I are doing Twitter essays about comics, 
or posts about comics. I don't know what they're called anymore. Anyway, we're still there until we move to another platform. So come find us. You can also find me at the podcast, Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow, which is about the classic Marvel series Excalibur. Joe's been a guest. Lots of other super smart people have been guests over the course of that podcast. So come find us over there and all the regular podcatchers. Um, You can check out my book, Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero, available wherever fine books are sold. And um, in closing, I just want to say that I still hope that I... (laughs) I still hope that I get to be Kira Doris when I grow up. (laughs) Well, thank you again, Anna. And listeners, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss a great character in a great story. So long. Uh, That's not, oh, there goes my phone. Okay.